If you don't know what you're achieving, it's very hard to remain engaged. Number two, if you're always busy but not moving forward, then you are going to start to mentally and emotionally decay. Mm. Number three, fatigue is not a sign of success. So Mm. you finish the day and you go, oh, I'm so busy. Welcome to Building Doors. In this series, you'll develop the skills to build a roadmap for success, get inspired by those leaders who have come before you, and give you the confidence to stop waiting and start building. Welcome to the Building Doors podcast. Today we have with us Dean Mannix, international best-selling author, doctoral candidate, and Australia's better sales coach. He's delivered sales performance projects in over 25 countries for companies including Coca-Cola, Oracle, News Corp, Combank, Accor, Goldman Sachs, Memora Bank, Toyota, Macquarie Bank, Canon, and he's even consulted to the Boston Consulting Group. I wanted to get Dean on to chat to us today because when you're building doors, it's so often about creating opportunities and strategically and relentlessly chasing new business as well. Dean's path to sales has been a little bit different to most. As a lawyer, he negotiated and litigated complex disputes for some of Australia's largest construction companies. He took on the role of CEO as a property development company at the age of 24 and within 18 months had built and led a team of 137 people across seven locations. And then he found his way into sales, which we'll talk about during the podcast. Dean holds his law degree from QUT, an executive MBA from the AGSM, and is also a qualified yoga teacher, (laughs) of course. Welcome to the Building Doors podcast. What a great background you've had, Dean. It's, yeah, I couldn't wait to get you on because I think there's so much we can talk about. Thanks, Lauren. I appreciate it. And I love the uh, podcast voice. Oh, thank you. See, if I had that voice, I would have my own podcast. (laughs) I'll stop it. I'm blushing now. Um, Look, I really did want to get you on, firstly, to show off my podcast voice, uh, but secondly, (laughs) to learn more about your journey. So you started out as a solicitor doing property development and a CEO, and then you develop a passion for sales coaching. Where did this all start? How did this come about? And I always like to share this with people. I didn't get into sales by choice. Yeah. I got into sales by necessity, which is how most people end up in sales. And basically, uh, from hero to zero, I was zero to hero in terms of the property development, built the childcare centers, uh, 50-50 business partnership with my financial partner, and then blew everything up. So 25 and a half, I'm on the under 30, on the way to 30 rich list. I am, they didn't have it back then, but I'm killing it. <laughs> grow, 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 having an absolute ball. And then um, through quite a bit of ego on both sides, I have to take my credit for my part in it, but we blew the whole thing up and uh, ended up $437,000 in debt Whew. at 27 and a half. Yep. And a mate of mine said, um, you should sell photocopiers. And I said, you're an idiot. <laughs> you don't understand how much debt I'm in. He said, no, mate, you're an idiot. You don't know how much money you could earn. Mm. if you uh, jumped into selling photocopiers. And that's how I ended up. I took my cap in hand to the guy who was in control of the territories and said, give me a go. Wow. So that was how it started. And dealing with such a big setback like that, that, and were you personally in that level of debt as well and had to get out of that to then, okay, tell me more. How do you get the mindset to go back? You've been up at the CEO level, right? How do you get your mindset to get back and get back into the swing of things and start again? Well, it didn't happen immediately. You know, but at a core level, you've got to change the question. Mm -hmm. So if the question that's dominating your mind is, why did my partner do this to me? Mm. Then you're never going to get into an emotional state or a mental state where you can get yourself out and up and beyond where Mm. you are. Mm. If on the other hand, your question is, where's the money today? (laughs) 
<laughs> then you're going to be in a, a very, very different emotional state. And so one of the things that I, I do a lot of work around with teams, people, cultures is what are the questions we need dominating people's minds mm. and how do we create a culture mm-hmm. that generates that sort of question in people's minds and hearts every day. So tell us more, what are some of the questions we should be asking? So if a leader's listening or, and they've got their own team, what are the questions we should be asking on a daily basis? So where is the money today? Mm. And I don't think enough people ask that. They ask, what's in my inbox today? They ask, which one of my employees is going to be the biggest problem today? Mm. They ask, why can't it be easier? And so when you reflect on and meditate on the thoughts that are dominating your mind, behind every one of those thoughts is a question. Mm. So I guess the first thing is, is to become aware of the questions that you're asking and then ask yourself, what do I want to achieve and what sort of questions do I need to achieve that? I'll give you an example. One of yeah. the questions that really dominated my mind back then was, how can I motivate someone to help me today? Mm. And so that forced me to get out there and build a much bigger referral network, but on the premise that I was going to help them first and then get back mm. because I knew there was no way I could get out of debt or the level of debt I was in without massive leverage. That is just so amazing. And when you're at that level, what was the value you were providing? What did you go out there wanting to provide them? Oh, it was just sheer energy and just sheer coverage. So speak to enough people, talk to them about photocopiers, show them that they're wasting money on toner. And I, I, I was in a really amazing time then because there was a genuine value proposition. Mm. So printers were eight to 10 cents per copy in toner. Mm-hmm. Photocopiers were one and a half to two cents in toner. Mm. So you could pay for the machine with the difference and earn a healthy profit. So it's a pretty amazing moment in time. You just had to explain those numbers to enough people, make them believe them, mm. and away you go. I wanted to talk to you about your viewpoint around sales because sometimes sales can be a bit of a dirty word for people, right? You know, oh, I don't want to be salesperson. Oh, I'm not salesy. They don't want to take ownership of that role. Do you get that sort of resistance and what do you say? Everywhere. Yeah, tell me more about Everywhere. Well, we'll think about it. How many businesses are calling their salespeople salespeople? They're they not. call them BDMs, they call them relationship <laughs> managers, they call them success managers. They'll call them anything but salespeople. And that's a real problem because the bottom line is we respond to our labels. Mm. And if a huge part of your identity is I deliberately have a title that doesn't have sales in it, then you've got a bit of a challenge if you've got a sales number next to your name. Mm. And the person managing you and coaching you has got a major issue because you're not identifying as a salesperson each day. So I'm an international best-selling author, I'm a yoga teacher, I'm a blah, 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 but I'm a salesman. And I tell myself that every day because selling is what makes me successful. And the thing I think that people have to get their head around is if you're the business owner, the quality of your business is the quality of your sales. Mm. And the quality of your business is the quality of your life. You can't escape it as a business owner. If your sales suck, your life sucks. Yeah, right. (laughs) so true. And then if you're a salesperson, each and every day, the quality of my life is defined by how much I'm selling. Mm. It's as simple as that. If you're smashing budget, if you're earning great money, if you're on top of the leaderboard, life is awesome. If you're walking to work like more than 50% of salespeople are today under budget, then you're not feeling certain about your job. You're not earning the income you should. You're taking a lot more risk than you should be given the lack of payment and life pretty much sucks. And that's showing through in the numbers in terms of engagement and mental health studies around salespeople. It's interesting you talk about you would see yourself as a salesperson first, right? Yeah. Was that always the case? No, no way. How did that change? (laughs) When I I started selling photocopiers, one of the (laughs) dominant questions in my mind was, how did my life, insert expletive, come to this? (laughs) And it's funny, you know, you go out with mum and people say, Dean, what do you do? And I go, I'm in sales. Mum would go, oh, no, no, Dean's a lawyer. No, mum, I'm in sales. Oh, Dean's an international bestseller. Mum, I'm in sales. I love you, mum, but I'm in sales. And so um, I don't know where we're going with that, but basically you've really got to embrace the identity because 
if you went to a knee surgeon and the knee surgeon said, look, I operate on knees, but I really wanted to be a violinist. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'll do the best job I can. (laughs) But tonight I'm going to be practicing my violin because that's what I actually wanted to do. You'd be going, oh, hang on, hang on. (laughs) Get away from my knee. (laughs) So how do you feel about having salespeople in your team and your business that are going, well, I'm doing this because I've got no other options? Yes. And I think there's so much around what you said around the mental shift and saying, I'm a salesperson, I'm here to do sales and owning that role in a business. You can never be excellent at something if Mm. you don't embrace it. Mm. It's as simple as that. So what's the secret sauce or your secret sauce around selling? And don't give it all away, but what's are some top tips you could give on the spot? right now because you're a salesperson. You can do this to people listening to get better at sales. What are some simple things they could start to do around mindset or around some strategies they can? There's seven things that I've identified from working globally in over 25 countries with the most amazing companies and the most amazing salespeople in the world that will drive sales growth. Probably my biggest piece of advice was focus on one. The moment you try to focus on seven different things, you're focusing on nothing Mm. and you're destined to fail. Mm. And so choose something to become excellent at. Second thing is focus on it for at least 90 days. Nothing changes in less than 90 days in general. Mm. And most people get excited one week and try and train everybody up in one week or one day or whatever it might be. And then they fall away and then they come back to it four weeks later, then they fall away. So you've got to commit for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But I think the number one thing, if I had to choose one thing, and I'm not big on that sort of being funneled into what's the one thing, but if I had to choose, it's outcome focus. Just teaching people to mentally ask themselves, what am I actually trying to achieve here? Like when I'm writing an email, when I'm picking up the phone, when I'm going to a meeting, when I'm writing a proposal, when I'm about to present that proposal, what am I actually trying to achieve? Because it's amazing how many people are caught in this massive noise of busyness and constantly fatigued, but are achieving very little. And and that's got downside on a multitude of levels. I mean, number one, if you don't know what you're achieving, it's very hard to remain engaged. Number two, if you're always busy, but not moving forward, then you are going to start to mentally and emotionally decay. Mm. Number three, fatigue is not a sign of success. So Mm. you finish the day and you go, oh, I was so busy, but your boss is going, but I've got no numbers on the board and I've got to pay you next week. We've got a real problem, haven't we? So I think it's outcome focused both from the salesperson, but as importantly, the people leading them. Mm. See, if you're not asking your team members, what did you achieve on that call? What did you achieve in that meeting? What did you achieve when you went to that networking breakfast? And better still, asking them before they go, then you're letting them down because you're not creating that construct Mm. within your business and your culture. Mm. I think the outcomes thing is a great thing. We recently shifted in our team. Every day we have a huddle and we go, what are our top outcomes for today? What are we going to achieve today? And also we workshop struggles, anything we might be needing to struggle with. But I just think that's such a great thing. When you focus on outcomes, it just shifts your thinking. Have you read Vern Harnish, um, Scaling Up? I think that might have been where I got the idea. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, I was reading it. I did an executive program and that was the book that they recommended. I've been starting to work through it. Yeah. Jeez, it's, it's a heavy It's a heavy book. It's a, heavy it's book. a very heavy book. Yeah. But one of Vern's core constructs is the business that pulses faster grows faster. Mm. And it's the same for the human, the human that pulses faster, grows faster. And a pulse is just checking in with where we're at, what progress we're making towards the desired goals. Mm. And so the morning huddle is a very, very powerful strategy for pulsing within the business. Hey, what's on the agenda today? What are we going to move from left to right in agile terminology? Mm. But I think a pulse that's as important is the afternoon huddle. What wins did we have today? Mm. And what we need to be doing tomorrow? 
Yeah, that's a good one. We don't have an afternoon huddle, but it sounds like a great idea because I think then you have that sense of completion and that sense of achievement too. Exactly. When I had a bigger team down in Sydney, one of my favorite activities was the Friday afternoon. And yes, we work Fridays, (laughs) which is hard for me. I'm in sales. (laughs) But four o'clock on Friday, we'd crack open the bar and we'd talk about wins of the week. And when 25 people all share a win, everybody leaves into the weekend feeling good about themselves, feeling good about the business, feeling like we've made progress, even though there might have been some challenges. If you leave it to them to construct how was the week, most of them are going to walk to the pub or walk home and go, I'm just so tired. Yes. And that's not the way you want someone feeling about their work as they enter the weekend. I just love that. That's a great idea. And I know that they have, a lot of companies have Friday afternoon drinks anyway. You know, it is a common thing that around four o'clock. So what a great way to just impart something like that within an already existing structure. Coaching is about controlling the conversation, Hmm. right? So the bottom line is as a leader slash coach, you can and should be influencing, if not controlling the conversation that your people are having with others and mentally with themselves. Mm. And so when I'm working with someone, I want their conversation to be, I feel great about myself. I feel great about the work I'm doing. I feel great about the people I'm doing it with. And I feel great about the results I'm achieving Mm. through coaching, have a dramatic impact on that conversation. And if I do that, I have a dramatic impact on the person's performance, well-being, engagement, all those other things that matter to me as someone who cares about the people I work with and around. Give me an example of a recent moment you've been really proud where you've been able to shift someone's thinking in sales. And I know there's probably heaps and you may not want to, obviously, because it's personal, you can not have to give specific details, but I think it'd be really good to share a case study. I'll give you a simple example. And this is actually a few years ago, but it's, you know, there's lots and lots of different moments that stand out. And this one's worth sharing. And that was, I don't really do two-day courses anymore. I'm too old, too tired. And I'd just blow people up if I'm <laughs> in their face for two days. So I don't torture people with that stuff anymore. But um, I was running these two-day sessions around how to coach and lead people. And now I extrapolate that over eight weeks. And a fellow came to me in day two, and we were talking about the difference between activity and outcomes. And most businesses are very blunt. They just drive, give me the 10 meetings, give me the 10 calls, give me the 10 proposals. And it's just about activity, activity, activity Mm. versus what's inside that activity. Mm. And so this business had been trained from the top down just to drive that, drive that, drive that. And he said, look, I feel actually a bit embarrassed. I rang one of my team members last night, like he told us to do. And I said, how'd you go last week with the meetings? And I could hear the reluctance in their voice because I was actually listening to the emotion like he told us to do. And they said, listen, I only got through four meetings. And instead of saying, why didn't you get through 10, which was my natural default, I actually said, "Um, so how'd those four go? And he said, look, I could almost hear the person falling off their chair. Hmm. And we had the best conversation about the four meetings. And in fact, three of them were really high impact meetings, which made a major difference from a revenue perspective. And, And I just realized that the conversations that I've been having with my people did not reflect me caring about the work inside the activity. Mm-hmm. And... I've learned a lot from that. And so those are the moments because when you can impact a sales manager to have a significantly better impact on their seven to 10 salespeople, that's stuff that really turns me on. Mm. But then there's also the moment, and I've been doing this 26 years now, where you get someone who was literally 21, 22 years old when you trained them 20 years ago and they come up to you now and they're the GM or whatever of sales and they say, (laughs) you told me back then and I blah, blah. And you're like, I don't even remember saying that, but that's great. (laughs) 
So I want to touch on something you said before as well, because that's a really important moment that you shared of that proud moment, but you briefly touched on the mental health around salespeople. And I guess one of the things I think that is important to note is the disappointment and the rejection side of it too. And coping with that as a sales, because that's honestly, what are people fearing a lot of the time? Rejection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how do you work with that? How do you work and become okay with no and rejection and objections? For sure. So I think the first thing is, is you have to develop a healthy sense of belief around the fact that to be great, you have to fail more than you succeed. Mm. So if you look at, and I love the analogy that Babe Ruth, I think, struck out seven out of 10 times to mm. become the best, the greatest baseball mm. batsman. I don't know, batsman. <laughs> Sorry, babe. Hold you Americans <laughs> listening to this. Um, but in the history of the game, right? And so so imagine turning up to work every day and somebody's saying, hey, listen, the bottom line is you're going to miss seven out of 10, but you could be the world's greatest if you're just willing to keep striking and keep striking and keep striking. Mm. And I think there's a great Michael Jordan comment around that as well. So I think the first one is getting your head around the fact that being amazing at sales is being able to go through those seven failures to get the three successes mm. and not have that one failure, then be navel gazing for about three days and missing out on the three successes that would come. And so being able to create a construct in your mind where you really believe that, you know what, it's okay. Every failure is one step closer. Every failure is one step closer. And then I think adopting a mindset of the win-learn versus win-lose, right? It's okay to lose a deal as long as you learn something from it. And maybe what you should have learned is it was never a deal mm. and I shouldn't have been wasting time on it. Mm. But I think the win-learn mentality is really important. And I definitely notice that with the top performing salespeople and sales teams, they spend a lot more time analyzing success than they do pondering failures. Yes. And so... I think that's a really important construct mentally to go, okay, great. So if I'm going to be amazing at this, then I've got to have incredible resilience around just going and failing, going and failing, going and failing, ideally going and learning, going and learning, going and learning, win. Yes. I think you're so right. I think a lot of the time people do look at their failures and go, what did I do wrong? Why didn't this work out? Why didn't I get the deal? I can't believe this. Well, that's why there's nothing in the CRM because until I win the deal, I'm not putting it in the CRM. Yeah. Which is why you've got such crap data. And which is why everyone tells me that their sales conversion rate's over 50%, which is just a total lie. <laughs> just a total lie. Like crack cocaine dealers don't have a conversion rate of over 50%. So what sales company would think that they do? They just don't. It's true. And I think analyzing the wins, I think so often people will win a sale and it's all the celebration of it, but analyzing and pinpointing why that yeah. was successful. I don't think a lot of companies no do way. it. You know what? The sales manager, I believe, is the person who needs to mm. call. Everyone stop. Let's figure out what the heck happened here. Let's actually talk about where the lead came from. Let's go right back to the beginning point because that's probably our biggest challenge is getting stuff into our funnel mm. and figure out where that lead came from. And let's figure out which steps we took them through that actually took them down the funnel or up the funnel, whichever way you want to think about it. There's not enough time really spent there because what should happen every time you win a deal, the first thing that should pop through your brain is, where else can I leverage what I've just learned from that to do another deal? Mm. Just like that. Oh my gosh. Game changer. The fact that you can sit down and analyze how you've won, how you got to that lead and then just replicate it. Sounds so simple, right? You just need a framework. Yeah. Great. Okay. So when we talk about sales, is everybody in sales, right? Or are there specific roles in sales? Because I would even argue in the role of recruitment, every single person, every time you go into an interview, you're selling yourself. Oh, you're in sales. Holy dooly. (laughs) 
you and everybody involved around you is in sales. Like, you know, you're selling them on the roll. They're selling themselves oh, yes. on the roll. They're selling. <laughs> so the, much selling going the, on. There's just so much selling going on. Your client's selling this person on their company. It's like, yeah, so the sales are But I, I think rather than we're all in sales, we're all in influence. And what I mean by that is we go through our lives and our ability to increase the probability that someone will say yes to us and support us mm. and reduce the probability that someone will say no or be a barrier to us mm. is going to have a dramatic impact on every aspect of our life. Mm. And so whether we like it or not, we are all in the influence. Now, there's over 80 years of very robust research out there on how to increase the probability of a yes and how to decrease the probability of a no. And if you're not aware of that as a human being, then there's a high probability you're making things harder than they need to be. Mm. And the fascinating thing about that is the biggest gains I've had globally across every culture, across every industry, across every company I've worked with have become have come from stopping people doing stupid things that cause no's rather than inserting really smart, tricky things that cause people to say yes. Ooh, good. Let's unpack that. So what are some of the smart and tricky things that people can do to get to a yes? All right, so a smart and tricky thing to get to a yes. Let's understand the concept of priming. So classic experiment in priming. Imagine you're going down to your local supermarket mall and there's an energy drink company that's trying to get your email address mm -hmm. so that it gets you on the database and get you hooked to their caffeine drink. God bless them. <laughs> All right, so team, good brand, good-looking people, et cetera, et cetera, out there saying, hey, can I send you a free energy drink voucher? I just need your email address. 33% success rate. Then a smart marketer slash influencer came up and said, let's try this. So instead of just, can I get your email address to send you a free drink? They said, hey, do you consider yourself an adventurous person? Hmm. Now, 97% of people say yes to that question because if you don't, that means you are? Boring. Boring, correct. So yeah. not, they knew 97% of people were going to say <laughs> yes. And then they asked, by the way, can I get your email address so I can send you a fantastic energy drink? 75.3% of people said yes. What? More than double. By inserting one question before the request. Wow. So we're all loaded up with tons of shortcuts mm. for decision making. Mm. And when you understand those shortcuts, you can implement simple strategies like that. As an example, for all of you out there selling something, at the start of presenting a proposal, one of the things you should say is, look, you know, really this is a decision about whether you go this way or that way. So I want to take you through the numbers and the ideas and the solutions, but that's what this decision is all about. If you say that at the beginning of the proposal, then as you take them through the proposal, that's how they're going to contextualize all the information you're talking about. And when you get to the end of the proposal, you can simply say, so like I said, it was a decision about this or this. So it kind of makes sense to go this way, doesn't it? Oh, clever. And you can radically change people's decision-making process. Likely they'll make a decision in the moment. Like they'll make a decision to you. So there's, there's just so many little things you can do. Yeah. If you just start to switch on the brain. So is the psychology around the fact that they consider themselves an adventurous person then saying that they're more likely to jump in and go, sure, because I'm an adventurous person. That's my identity. We have a consistency bias. If I just said I'm adventurous and I go, I'm not giving you my email, then there's a <laughs> conflict, right? And so once again, as an example, you know, you might say to somebody in your business, listen, obviously speed matters, but getting the right recruits more important, right? Yes. Now, if you say that before you then tell them or deliver the news that it's going to take four weeks instead of two, there's a much higher probability they'll say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I'd rather wait four weeks. But if you don't say that and you simply say, look, we're not going to be able to do two weeks and you use that language, then you set them up for mm, you know, mentally to not be in a great place. Yeah. So there's just 
when you unpack things, it's, you know, my brain is just living in this space. And so it's kind of fun, but it's scary if you just take a bit of a step back from your business and start observing the way that you're selling and your people are selling. Yeah. Just how many dumb things we're doing. Yeah. And it's just interesting to just pick up on little priming tips and things like that, that people can, simple things that people can do that can have such a dramatic effect on results. I'll give you another negative for all those out there listening to this. Stop putting quote on your documentation. The moment you use the word quote, you trigger off a part of the brain that says, I probably should get another one of these. Oh. The moment you say quote, you trigger off a part of the brain that says that's probably not the real price. So why would you use the word quote? It is the price. Correct. Yes. But it's not in a quote. <laughs> and should the wording better be proposal? It could be solution. It Solu- could be proposal. Oh. It could be strategy. Could yes. be a multitude of words, but just stop using the word quote. <laughs> you hear that, everybody? St- delete the word <laughs> it's quote. It's hard. Yeah. It's, it's like it's as hard as stopping saying how are you at the start of a phone call. Yeah. Because, yeah. by the way, that's another great strategy for really ruining an outbound call. Really? Yes. Or what about is now a good time to talk? You can do better. Do you have a quick moment? Is oh, the phrase that, that we found triggers off approval to continue much more effectively. Do you have a quick moment? Yeah, because if you've got time quick to talk, moments. it's like, yeah, moment. not really, but... M- Moment's not time bound. The moment you say time, you cause people to focus on this concept of time. Do you have a quick moment? Do you have a quick moment? That's great. And should people, I've heard (laughs) mixed reports on this as somebody founding a business, starting a business and having a lot of referrals. I've had such a mixed view on, are you better just going with warm leads and getting referrals and continuing that organic growth? Or is cold call something that we shouldn't be scared of? Some people say it's less successful to do a cold call and you need to try and channel your way through to getting to the person through a known connection. What are your thoughts on that pipeline? Okay, so you you need skills at both ends of the continuum, right? You ultimately want to make as many warm calls as you possibly can and ideally hot, hot, hot calls, right? That's that's (laughs) got to be the, that has to be the goal. Hot potato calls. Yeah, the reality (laughs) for most businesses and salespeople is they've got to start somewhere. Mm. And when you're starting down the other end of the continuum, which is like, I don't have a network, I don't have a portfolio of customers, I don't have a bunch of testimonials, I don't have a bunch of referrals, then you may have to play down that colder end. But you can warm up a cold call by, once again, using psychology. So a really simple example might be, hi, I'm from a team that works with this type of client and we've just had some great success in this area. Now, you haven't had that success, but the team has. Mm. And away you go. Mm. You might say, hey, we're actually just around the corner in so-and-so street, so it made sense to give you a call. And all of a sudden, you can warm that call up with a location. Yeah. Um, there's, there's loads of different strategies you can make that you can use to warm calls up. But in general, yeah, you absolutely should be trying to warm things up because in this world of social media, interconnectedness, et cetera, et cetera, it's not too hard to warm a call up. But I will say this, what the mistake a lot of people make is in the time that they could have made 30 cold calls and come across three people that were ready to buy whatever they had, and just being lucky, a lot of people actually spend all of that time trying to warm up one cold call. Mm. So you've got to be careful mm-hmm. of, if you are warming the call up, put a time limit on it yeah. <laughs> and, and generate some urgency around it because often it's just the excuse to not make the calls. Interesting is, well, I want to talk to you about something that's a bugbear of mine, which is people that add you on LinkedIn and sell to you straight away. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts on this. W- what do you think about these people that just come straight in and you add them and the next minute you apparently want their VA? So we're, edit- set- we're editing this, aren't we? So you can beep out the words that I want to use yeah, to describe absolutely- that. No, well, I might not though, because Look, I, I do like a bit of a raw. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. So when I've spoken to people that are doing that en masse, and I've spoken to a few people that I, I know are running successful businesses and do, are doing that on mass. They simply say, look, the bottom line is we treat it as a numbers game. And mm. fundamentally, we know if we send out 100, 
three to five will actually be in the market for that solution or that product or that idea. And we're now top of mind and because they've got us there and at that moment, we often get people reaching out and saying, tell me a bit more, okay. right? So there is sometimes a method to the madness, but on the whole, I think it's a really poor strategy. Yeah. Like it's a very poor strategy and generally I just delete people, but it's amazing how sensitive people can become. So I reached out to a bunch of sales managers and let them know, look, I'm publishing all this stuff on LinkedIn mm -hmm. around how to coach sales more effectively. If that's of interest, connect with me and I'll let you know. So I had a bunch of people connect with me. The next day I released a video, which had no sell in it whatsoever, gave three really good strategies for coaching and tagged a number of the people that had joined. And one of them came back immediately on social media saying, tagging me the day after connecting with me, total fail, loser, and I'm out of here, which best of luck, mate, I don't really need you. But it was like, well, dude, like th the construct of me connecting with you was I'm pumping this information out. I'm letting you know that it's there because I know that I've got plus 10,000 followers and, and LinkedIn connections on top of that. So the likelihood of you getting that content straight into your feed is low. So yeah, it's weird. It's a weird one. And I think it's also, you can't take that personally. Oh, or no. you, you know, when people don't <laughs> like what you've Next. got. <laughs> Next. Next. You know? I reckon that's one of the most important words you can learn in sales. Next. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Because sometimes you go, oh, but you get so invested in the solution and then what that you want to help them and you know you can. I mean, we, we had a client we pitched to and for them, it's just out of their budget. But I know for a fact that it's costing them far more not to have roles filled, but they just don't want to pay for the solution. And I mean, that's fine for them. Yeah. But then we were the same. We were next. I mean, I know I want to help them. But have, have you heard Lily Bumpkiss, the world record holder for selling Girl Guide cookies? No. Amazing story. <laughs> Jump online if you haven't seen it. Lily Bumpkiss. And um, she sold, I think it was, I can't remember the exact number because I haven't got it with me, but it was like 35,000 boxes of Girl Guide cookies. Wow. Right. <laughs> they she, are pretty good cookies. Nine years old. I agree. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm don't fan. mind the girl. But she's got, someone said to her, like, Lily, you're nine years old. You're going into these big businesses and asking them to get everybody to buy cookies and you've been on these presentations and et cetera, et cetera. How do you cope with the rejection? She goes, oh, that's easy. My mummy taught me SW, 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 SW. And they were like, well, what's that? She goes, well, some will, some won't. So what? Someone's waiting. <laughs> oh, just, that's adorable. Just gold, right? Like, you know, some will, some won't. <laughs> so what? Someone's waiting. <laughs> And if you're in that, oh my gosh, they didn't buy from me or they're not understanding things, well then you're missing the someone that's waiting. I love it. No, Nine-year-old wisdom. How embarrassing that is. That's so good. You, you listen to her story and you'll be very embarrassed about being an adult that's not great at sales because I was. <laughs> yeah, that is, I mean, it's such a simple thing, but it is mindset, isn't it? It is getting that into your mind and thinking about it and approaching your day the right way. But if your trigger to somebody saying, no, we don't want you want is, oh, I'm a loser, this is going to ruin my whole day and maybe I'm doing the wrong job, then you've got a real problem, right? Yeah. But if you've got a trigger that goes, well, it's SW, 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 then your brain goes to a very different place <laughs> and you remain. I prefer not to use the word positive. I prefer to use the word constructive. Mm. And what I mean by that is I shouldn't be running around going, I'm so happy I got rejected. <laughs> right? Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there might be a few lunatics out there that can pull that off consistently, but most of us are going to go, yeah, right, to ourselves, that is. But just remaining constructive around, okay, cool, didn't win there. What have I learned? What's next? Yeah, I love that. I love that. And it's just a trick or a tool that people can be using to continually get up and make that next call. Mix. Yeah, call the trick, call the tool, call it whatever. We're all brainwashed no matter what, mm. right? We're all brainwashed. The question is, are you doing the brainwashing or are you letting the market do the brainwashing? That's mm. the question that you've got to ask. And mm. you can take so much more control than most people will take responsibility for. Tell me more. One of the other things you mentioned, which got me and got me interested, yoga teacher. 
Yes. Because sales has this feeling of high energy enthusiasm and there is that element to it. But I want you to tell me we're at yoga. How does yoga impact the work you do? I'm not currently teaching classes, but I have a highly addictive personality. So if I don't keep myself busy, things tend to go pretty off the rails. (laughs) Can relate. Um, And so, so the yoga was just like, I'm really enjoying this. I want to learn more about it. And so I tend to just get into something and, and so found out that I could do a 18 month course with the school and and I was teaching um, a lot back then. And so, but the yoga is more of an extrapolation. I went to my first meditation course at 12 and a half. So um, I think I would have been diagnosed with ADHD or something like that, not to discount that, but you know, I was a really crazy young kid with a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, needed to be run like a horse all day, just like go to sleep. And my father's response to that was to take me to a meditation course at 12 and a half. Mm. And so I've been meditating, that's coming to 45 years now, and the yoga just felt like a natural progression mm. of, of that. And it's funny, in, in yoga, there's eight journeys and the royal journey is where, you know, you're turning into a beam of light and you're floating off into yoga heaven or whatever it might be. My journey is the most basic. It's the physical journey. Like I'm just really into the physical side of the world. And so yoga was a really nice way to explore that. Mm. How do you build the physical side? Tell me more about the physical side and how you build that into the work you do and your day as well. Only the strong can help the weak. And it's interesting. I get a lot of pushback on using the word weak in the world that we live in. It's like, we can't call them weak, Dean. It's like, well, okay, well, I'm just quoting JFK. And that was a quote that really stuck with me when I was younger. Mm. And so being physically strong to me enables me to mentally be stronger and emotionally be stronger. And physical movement and exercise obviously is incredibly good for the brain, incredibly good for the hormones that are running around your body and the and dealing with the stress response and all those other things. And so health has been a core value for me since 27 when I really sat down and figured out what my values were and wrote them down. And so, yeah, the exercise is a huge part of life. Mm. I like that quote that you used as well because you do have to be mentally strong and that does come from being physically strong as well and having balance. I guess another thing is when you are so high energy and like achieving, how do you maintain balance in your own life? I'm not really big on balance. (laughs) (laughs) I'm big on are you enjoying life on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, right? And the challenge I have with balance is this, is that if you're striving for balance, then you're always going to be a little bit guilty when you're home with the family and you're always going to be a little bit guilty when you're at work and you're always going to be a little bit guilty when you're at exercise. So that's the reason I don't like that terminology because it's like it it suggests there's this trade-off. Whereas people who just say, you know what, I just need to start to become honest with myself about the stuff that I really enjoy and do more of it and be prepared to face the consequences. So if what you really enjoy is spending more time with your family, cool, just admit that and be prepared to face the consequences of the fact that you are not going to be as productive as another person working more hours with more intensity. That's the reality. So resonate with that. If you're going to smash yourself at work for 12 to 14 hours a day because you're committed to becoming a billionaire and good luck to you if that's what really matters to you, then you are never going to outwork me in the gym because you simply won't have the time and the energy. Mm. So, and that's okay. Mm. But just make choices and be prepared to accept the consequences. And when you accept the consequences, you don't feel out of balance. Oh, it's really good because, I mean, I have two young children. I'm very intentional about the clients I partner with because I want to work with less clients more closely, make more money with less clients, right? Yeah. So I give high quality work. Am I going to compete with the people out there working with 50 clients and working 80 hours a week? No, I've got little kids. Correct. You know, but I'm okay with but that. But build your business around that. Build yes. a version of yourself in your business around that. Build your value proposition around that and find other people that believe in the same thing and away you go. Yes. Right? But don't expect to build the next haze. Mm. if that's the decision you've made. And that's okay. And I definitely don't want to do that. So it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely, that's I, okay. You know, but I also think 
it's interesting when you talk about, I think people don't often take the time to really think about their values and what they want from their life. I think people have too many values. Mm. The concept of values is being just bastardized. I don't know if that's a, you know appropriate word, but basically it's like if you've got seven values, you've got a lot of problems because the value is something that you value significantly more than other things and therefore are willing to sacrifice for. Mm. So, And you can't sacrifice for seven different things. No. Right? And so if you can't hone it down to three values, then the reality is you're probably not being honest with yourself about what really matters in your heart of hearts. Yeah. And, and I think the reason people get so mixed up is they often build their values around what they think other people want to hear yes. rather than what they truly care about and what's inside their DNA. And I think for me, time and time again, everyone knows this, it's worked me forever, integrity is really important to me. It's a core value with my children too and with work. And I won't compromise that. I'll walk away. And that away. probably gets you into a bit of trouble, right? It does. It sometimes <laughs> means that I have to walk away from stuff that might be profitable but doesn't feel good, doesn't yeah. feel in line with my own integrity. And, and you've got nice to make saying that, right? Because integrity is not honesty. Honesty is like a hygiene factor. Yes. Integrity is am I truly walking my talk? Am I consistent with who I say I am to myself and who I'm saying I am to the rest of the world? Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, that's a really interesting one. And it means taking the good with the bad and being happy to go with the consequences. Yeah. Integrity can get you some fabulous clients. It can also mean that you might have a client that you've made a profit with that doesn't act with integrity and what are you going to do? Yeah. What choice are you going to make? And I think it's hard to make the hard choices, but that's when you know it's a value because you're acting in line with it no matter what. When you're prepared to sacrifice it for it, that's when you know it's a value. What are your core values? My core values since 27 have been health. Yep. And so health includes mental, financial, spiritual, you know, not just physical health. Mm-hmm. Growth. So fundamentally, if I'm, and that's, you know, becoming a yoga teacher, now doing my doctorate, doing my MBA along the way. If you're not green, you're not growing. And so mm. basically, you know, when you're green, you grow. When you're ripe, you're rot. Mm. Good old Ray Kroc. <laughs> um, and then happiness. If it's not making me happy, I just have to stop doing it. Mm. With the happiness, I want to unpack that one a bit more. When you say if it's happy, if it's making you happy, you know how sometimes something isn't making you happy at that point in time because there's a struggle involved? How do you equate whether it's going to make you happy long term and you've got to go through the struggle or whether it's just if it doesn't feel good, I don't do it? Tell me more about that value. Yeah, okay. So if it doesn't feel good is not the opposite of happiness, right? Mm-hmm. So lots of things that make you happy don't feel good feel good in the moment. Yeah, like fitness. Well, on that level where fitness does make me happy. <laughs> it does make me When you're doing like 50 squats or lunges, are you really happy, Dean? Because I'm not, but maybe I'll get to that point. Well, I think the challenge that most people have is because they don't have a long-term view on their life, whether that's their relationship, their business, whatever it might be, mm. then they can't find the happiness in the tough moments. Mm. Um, and so the longer-term view, the clearer that view is, the more you understand why you're doing what you're doing now the easier it is to be happy about the stuff that maybe other people couldn't find happiness in. But there's always a way to find happiness. You know, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, when you see people work and they find a way to make it fun. Yeah. Right? And other people doing exactly the same job find a way to make themselves miserable doing it. Mm. So in general, I think that a lack of happiness is a signal to you, but sometimes it's a signal that you just need to do it differently mm. or you need to reframe it mentally as opposed to, well, that didn't make me happy, so I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah, so it's not necessarily about being happy at every given moment, but knowing and finding the happiness in the moments that are leading you to where you want to be yes, as on. well. Okay. Well, and, and it's an interesting one. Does your business make you happy? 
Yes. And for most people, it doesn't, unfortunately. Which is so sad. Does your job make you happy? You know, if you ask people that, you'll often get the same answer to that question. Yeah. And I guess at the end of the day, if you're asking that question, does my job make me happy? Does my business make me happy? I think then coming back and really revisiting those values and why you're doing it, why you're in the career you're in, why you've started the business you've started and seeing if you can find those happy moments. So you could go that way or you could just maybe take a shortcut and say, well, how could I make it happy? How could I make it make me happy? Yes. Or when am I happy in my business and how could I do more of that? More of the stuff that lights you up. what specifically is making me unhappy and how can I attack that? Mm. So in your business, what are the elements that make you happy? I just love, I love talking sales. (laughs) <laughs> I just love Your talking sales. Your face does light up. <laughs> I, love, I love solving sales challenges. I love just talking sales and helping people sell stuff. I get a big buzz when people give me feedback and say, yeah, I tried that strategy. You know, So often when I'm explaining my why, there was a fun moment in Suncorp. I can say that because you know, it's very public. I did a lot of work with them back in the 2010, 12 to 15. And I do a lot of work in the call centres and I was asked down to this call centre, they got 20 people in a room from the call centre of Mm. all different ages and backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera, just to ask me questions and we just chatted for an hour. Mm. And there was this one lady, she was like this Eastern European lady and she was, you know, I'm 55 now, she was probably late 50s and had had a pretty hard life and she was like this in the back looking at me and you know, just <laughs> looking at me like almost growling and it was like, oh my gosh. And everybody else is high five and you go, this is so much fun. This is exciting. She's like, Mrr. and I'm going, holy dooly. And, I, and I'm pretty perceptive around that stuff these days because I've done so much of it. And I was sort of, okay, I'm not going to call her out. I'm not going to, I don't embarrass her. I'm just going to let her go. It's all good. And finally, towards the end of the presentation, she said, well, what about this? And I went, oh, okay, she speaks. And I said, oh, wow. Okay. If that happens, this is what I do, blah, blah, blah. She went, well, what if they do this? I said, oh, well, in that moment, I'd say this, ask this, blah, blah, blah. Well, what if they do this? I said, oh, well, that's a really good one. I would actually change what I just told you to do. And I'd do this, this, and this so that we could avoid that. She went, well, what about this? And I went, wow, people really do that to you? Like they say that? She said, yes. I said, well, I'm so sorry that's happening to you, but what you don't want to do is this, because that will just escalate. And what you can do to retake control is this. And she went, hmm, okay. And the session went on, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I went to lunch and I came back up to it for another meeting and the team leader came running to the elevator and she was like, Dean, Dean, Dean. And I'm like, what's up? What's up? <laughs> and she went, Irene's running around the call center going, it works, it works. <laughs> and the thing about that is a lot of people would go, well, so what, Dean, you gave us some scripts and strategies. But my mum was a single mum who had to work and I'm thinking this 50-something-year-old lady's coming to work every day facing the same crap call after call after call and nobody had taken the time out and put the energy in to figure out solutions to those problems that were right in front of my face. And so every day she now walks into work saying, you know what, I've got that handled. Mm. And that to me is beautiful because that's the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving and giving. And if that means she goes home and has a bit more energy to pat the cat or smiles when she handles the strategy, that turns me on. That really turns me on. I love that. You said something there and you know I'm going to go there. I'm a parent, I have kids, and you mentioned having a single mum and growing up through that. How did that kind of childhood shape the person that you've become today? I have a massive fear of poverty mm. and that has motivated the hell out of me. <laughs> you know, And I'm, I'm constantly working towards shifting my motivation from a fear of poverty towards a joy for abundance, but it, it's an ongoing project. I'll let you know when I get there. Yeah. Um, but definitely... I think it it made me tougher, it made me hungrier, it made me more appreciative, 
And I guess, what would you say? Just, I'm so for the battler. Like I work with the biggest investment banks in the world and the smartest people and people earning like literally eight figures a year. But I get more turned on when I'm down the call center working with a 22-year-old kid who's trying to find their way in this world and Mm. doing the best they can. Mm. And I think the fear of poverty and that journey and then having gone through your own situation when you're, what, 400,000, that would have been hard. You had that fear of poverty. You get to that point. But you strike me as just such a positive person. Like your energy is, yeah, you can't feel it in the room. Probably can feel it through the podcast. (laughs) But it's buzzing in here. It's buzzing with Dean, you know, which I do love about you. So have you always had that energy in abundance? You said you had it as a child. I think I'm much better at sharing it with other people now. So when I was a child, it was much more putting it into myself. Mm and doing whatever it took to to get ahead and to be worthy of being loved, as every kid pushes so hard for. Mm. But now I think I'm a lot more comfortable in my own skin and so I'm able to share it with others. Mm. Um, I'm actually quite introverted in many ways. Really? Yeah. My team's totally offshored. I sit in an office on my own, which is quite a big office down on the Gold Coast, and I, and I just ramble around and I'm more than happy just to be on my own. I mean, I do. I love getting energy from others, but, yeah, you'd be surprised. I'm going to touch on just quickly managing a remote team as well, because a lot of people are moving to that landscape now in the workforce too. They've got remote workers, hybrid workers, contractors and flex employees that they've got. What are some of the techniques you've employed in working in sales with remote workers? How do you still be there and coach and support them? Most of my roles are very systematic Mm -hmm. and they're great people and they just get stuff done. So I would not rate myself as having expertise in relation to coaching a remote team. So I'm not going to give anyone advice, but I will say that the people I know that have been very successful in that space that I'm studying more and more because I I have a desire to build out a bigger team Mm. offshore. Number one thing is they're an employee. You've got to pretend that they're walking into your office every single day and that you're having a chat to them. So if you're not engaging with those people every single day visually and treating them as if they are in the office, then they're probably being successful for both you and them is very, very low. Yep. And I think that people think that offshore is like dusting your hands of all the problems. Well, that's no. just, it seems to me that that's, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. That is such a good point. And you need to be there. You know, we've got a hybrid model ourselves. You need to be there for people. You need to be there, show up and be there as a leader, even when you're not in the same physical space. You know, someone asked me the other day and I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm actually about to employ a social media manager. I'm out of offshore. Their comment was, oh, can you get a good one offshore? And it's like, well, there's actually a lot of really smart people over there, by the way, because guess what? There's 1.2 billion in that country and around about 300 million in this country. So odds are that there is. And and we have this arrogance, I think, in the Western world in general, in general and in developed countries that we're the smartest people in the room and that nobody else is going to be as smart as us. And, and once again, I think that's what causes people to not engage with their offshore team on the mm. premise that, wow, maybe I'll find that team member who is smarter than me. Yeah, I like that. And challenging the way that we do things is going to be the way of business moving forward. Oh, look, if everyone wants to work from home, like if you've got any employees listening to this, understand that if you want lots of flexibility and you want to work from home, you're now competing with the offshore. Yeah. So good luck with that. You better be (laughs) really, really good at your job. When you say competing with the offshore as well, so is your view that me- more people should be coming back to the office? What I'm saying, or? well, no, I'm saying if, if you want to operate in a domain where you're totally remote, understand this, that I can now get another remote person just because they're not in this country mm. doesn't really matter. Mm. So you start to look a lot like the offshore person if you're not coming in and out of the office, and you're not physically engaging it's true. in the environment. And so I just think we all need to be aware of the consequences of detaching from the workplace 
and um, claiming a little bit too much freedom because that might bounce back against a lot of people. It's interesting. We initially were going to be more of a remote model, but we've definitely moved to hybrid because, and I thought I'd be working from home as a director. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that cute? Yeah, good luck. Because I'm out on the road every day, right? (laughs) Meeting with people. So it was very cute that I thought that that would be the reality. But I do understand now so much more the importance of that face-to-face time and that connection and getting out and seeing and knowing intimately your clients as well. We all have a proximity bias, which means that the closer we are to one another, Mm. the more likely it is that we're going to experience liking, Mm. which means the more likely it is that we're going to support each other, share information with each other, provide access to each other, engage if we've got problems with each other and go out of our way to do no harm. Mm. When somebody's totally remote from us, we feel very little concern about doing that person harm because they're not proximate to us. (gasps) And that's why you get all these hideous emails and horrible communications because there's no proximity going on and so I feel no, no fear yes. of being nasty. Absolutely. And I think, if I think of that, we do a lot of recruitment in Sydney, right? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's great, but the clients we meet and when you meet and connect with them, it's so good. It is so much harder to build that trust. It takes a lot longer time yeah. to build that when you can't go and just grab a coffee every day or every week or catch up regularly on a regular basis. So that's really interesting insight. If you're selling something, you've really got to start thinking about proximity and understanding the impact that has on things and yeah. doing and your you best. can make it work. You just need to make the trip, go and yeah. see them, see face to face. And that's yeah. right now, I'm, I'm calling that double points. So you get double points for doing FaceTime, mm. right? So why wouldn't you be doing it? Yeah, exactly. I want to know a bit more around legacy. What's the legacy you hope to leave with your work and what you've been doing in this space? Yeah. So I'm doing my doctorate around sales coaching. You know, obviously that's my passion is, is around the sales coaching because of the impact that that has on the salespeople, mm. both positive and negative. Mm. And so over the next 20 years, I absolutely want to put a dent in an understanding of just how sales coaching plays out inside the SME environment, mm. what sales managers and business owners can be doing to have significantly higher levels of positive impact on their people, mm. and what's damaging people mentally, physically, spiritually that we can avoid, and, mm. and getting some research back in around that so that you can speak with authority on it. So right now, it's fascinating in doing a literature review around the world of sales coaching and what's going on and just what's been proven statistically and even qualitatively. It blew my mind just how empty and vacuous so many topics in this space are. Mm. Um, And so I really hope to fill that space. But in the meantime, like I said, if I can impact one Irene a week, Mm. I'm happy with that. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I don't need to change the whole world. I'm actually really happy with just one salesperson at a time. (laughs) Well, I think that it works now. uh, It does. I know know it works. (laughs) From now on, once people have listened to this episode, my team will definitely listen to this episode. We will now, when we get sales, we'll go, it works, it works. It can be a saying. And get yourself a gong so you can (laughs) gong it while you're saying it. Yeah, love it. Look, I want to go into our rocket round, so I'm going to ask you a few Uh, more questions around, yeah, just you. Sure. Learning more about the Dean. So, first question, coffee or wine? Beer. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Wine wine hurts my head too much. Yeah, I I love wine, but it really punishes me. Yes. And I don't drink coffee. Once again, addictive personality. If I did drink coffee, I reckon I'd have 10 a day. I get cut off if I drink too much coffee, so I think I'm pretty much the same. My team's like, how many coffees have you had, Lauren? I was like, don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And what about your favourite holiday destination? Uh, Hakuba. So we're lucky enough to have apartments in the um, Japanese Alps. 
Wow. So my wife spends about four and a half months a year there. And so we spend lots of time. We have a whole community of people over there that we have great relationships with and friends come and go. And we have amazing guests come because it's quite a luxury set of apartments. So it's an amazing one. Yeah. Love that. Cats or dogs? Have a cat, which I absolutely love, but do love dogs. Just don't have a lifestyle where I could walk the poor thing every single morning and night. And so it's not really an option. That'd vote for cats then? Can I take that as a vote? I'm going to vote for cats, but my cat's oh, a lot. Like, my cat's yes. a lot like a dog. My wife did teach it to fetch, <laughs> high five, and a number of other tricks. My wife's very strange. Your I love wife it sounds death. amazing. If she can convince she, a cat to do something, she's, you know, she sounds amazing. So my amazing. sister was over on the weekend, and she said the cat kept putting its paw up. I'm like, yeah, because <laughs> Teresa taught it. If the high fives, it gets food. <laughs> That's the best. That's the best. That's a vote for cats, and I'm taking it because uh, we take, haven't had many votes for take cats, have we? Take girl? it. And. And what podcast are you listening to right now? Uh, Alex Hormozzi, The oh, Game. I, I do right? like. And his, his wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. Layla, she's very impressive. Mm. And, and they're, they're the classic McDonald's. Two personalities that got together that created 10. Mm. You know, they really are one plus one equaling 10. And it's um, very impressive. And I think that what I love about Hormozzi is the depth of his thinking and his ability to translate incredibly complex concepts into nice, simple processes and structures is well, it's first class, world class, call it what you want, and very, very easy to implement if you just take the time out to go through it. So super impressed with him and what he's doing and what what he's sharing is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I find him really interesting too. And what makes you feel like you're home? I don't know. I always feel like I'm home. A bit of sunshine's nice, definitely, Mm. from the Gold Coast, so sunshine in the ocean, but then we feel very at home when we're in the mountains as well. So just great friends, my beautiful wife. Um, My daughter's in New York, so whenever we see her, it's absolutely amazing. But um, Love it. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You missed one. What? You missed one. I brought your book. You asked me, what's my favourite book? And I had to think about that. He's on to me. And and, and I I mean, everyone claims they've read seven or eight hundred books. But I lived, eat it, breathe books. Um, not so much now. I mean, obviously, I'm doing a lot of study around research and stuff. But I brought you a copy so you can ha- oh, take that one. Yeah, copy. absolutely. That's and insane. so that is The Greatest Miracle in the World by Og Mandino. It is a very old book. As you can see, it's a little bit frayed. I bought about 50 copies about 20, 30, oh, 40 oh, years oh, ago. Oh, I'm really going to break it. This is I know. Great. It's like literally, I mean, that's vintage. I had a lot wow. of traumatic times and, and stuff when I was a kid, and that was a little inverted commas brainwashing strategy tactic that just reminded me that no matter what's going on around you, that we're amazing as human beings. The greatest miracle. So that's that's Og Mandino, the greatest miracle that's in the world. That's right. He wrote the the greatest salesman in the world. He wrote oh, he wrote a ton of books. You know, I love writing. I will read this read this book, and they'll probably write an article so about it. So the trick is to read it a hundred times. Oh my gosh! Which I did Dean. as a kid. <laughs> yeah. There's one section here a hundred times. You've got it. You've got this. You've got this. <laughs> thank you. I will. Look, thank you so much for coming. I've had such a blast having you on the podcast. I want to learn more about how we can support you. How thank can we you. learn more about what you do and support you? For sure. If people go to www.bettersalescoach.com. They can get some free sales training. They can get my sales growth blueprint, which is like a 32-page ebook, which gives you a really step-by-step process for interrogating the sales growth opportunities in your business. And as a salesperson, I'm based down on the Gold Coast, so love conferences on the Gold Coast. And, <laughs> you know, just if you want to talk sales growth, reach out.
I love it. Thank you so much. Loved having you on as a guest. And I'm going to tell our audience as well, if you want more people to get value out of this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and help somebody else come out and build a door, make a new sale or change their mindset on sales. If I can have just one or two people get that out of this episode, then I think we've both won. Love it. Thanks, Dean. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Building Doors. If you've got comments or questions, send them to hello at buildingdoors.com.au. And remember to subscribe, rate, and review. See you next time.